The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. All right, well, we're in the deep end of the pool again this morning, aren't we? If you're newer around here or um, even newer newer to Christianity, newer to faith, I swear uh, we don't just go looking for the hardest parts of the Bible. That's, uh, that's, we, we've been preaching through the book of Romans for a while now, and um, this section in particular, and to, today at least, and for one, one or two more weeks, it's pretty hard stuff. Um, this is what happens when you preach through books of the Bible, though. You, you, can't, just, you can't just skip over the hard parts. Um, one of our core values around here is that we, that we seek depth, and we, we seek depth even in our understanding uh, of the, the scriptures. As a, as a church, we want you to know like we're, we're a church that wants to go deep into God's word because God in his word has revealed deep things to us that we want to get deep down into us so there's deep change that happens in us. And so I want to say a couple things this morning out of the gate. First off, knowing that this is a difficult um, passage and chapter of the Bible. One, um, if this section of Romans that we've been in here now, 9 through 11 in particular, if it's overwhelming you, okay, um, take heart, because once we hit Romans chapter 12, it gets a lot easier again, all right? It's hard. This is hard. It's hard to understand some of these things that Paul's talking about, and then even when you do start to understand it, it's really difficult to swallow. It's really hard to take in these truths, I'm fairly convinced that Peter had Romans 9 through 11 in mind when he wrote in 2 Peter 3.16 that some of Paul's letters, right, there's some things in them that are hard to understand. And he adds that uh, the ignorant and unstable twist them to their own destruction. But listen, if Peter found some of these things hard to understand, it's okay if you do too, all right? Uh, With that, you know, here's what I would say to you. Try to focus on what you do understand, all right? Um, None of us understands everything when we read the Bible. (laughs) None of us. The, the idea is that we're going to be reading and studying this thing for, for the rest of our lives. And, and so focus on what you do understand in this, in this passage, in this sermon, maybe even just the application towards the end, right? And, and make a little progress. Uh, next time you come back to it, you know, you glean a little bit more. And then the next time you come back to it, you'll, you'll glean a little bit more. That's how life as a Christian learning the Bible goes. That's how it goes. All right, secondly, I need to acknowledge that these three chapters in the Bible are controversial, okay? Have you found that out yet? Maybe in your gospel community? Hmm? Uh, Maybe just in past experiences? Uh, Anytime that you're talking about God's sovereignty and human responsibility, right? Um, Anytime you're talking about the doctrine of election, okay? Um, Or God having mercy on whom he has mercy, the hardening of hearts, the remnant. These things are controversial, even amongst Christians. One time I was at a coffee shop with a, a brother who we were having a conversation about some of these things and kind of got into a debate a little bit about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And, um, and he was asking some questions and kind of making some points. And I said, well, hey, let's, let's actually open up God's word and see what it says. And I started reading just out loud there at Meadowlark um, from Romans chapter 9, and this person started shouting at me right there in Meadowlark, getting like just, just sort of overcome with emotion, um, mocking me actually for reading God's word. Like the, the, these things are 
controversial. Can we, can we admit that? It's controversial. It gets even some of God's good Christian people riled up from time to time. Romans 9 is controversial. Romans 10 is controversial. Romans 11 is controversial, especially as we get further into it. When, when Paul says in verses 25 and 26 later in the chapter that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved, <laughs> in case you didn't know, that's controversial. All right? Um, that's the kind of raw materials that are used for end times charts and graphs, okay? Um, and I say all that to say that we need to approach Romans 9 through 11 because it's hard to understand, like Peter said. We need to approach these passages with reverence. We need to approach these passages with humility. Because it's controversial, we need to approach these passages with care. Like being generous and gentle and loving towards other Jesus-loving, Bible-studying Christians who might study the same scriptures with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and come to a different conclusion than you? Can we be generous when we're doing that? I mean, Paul himself is going to end this whole section in doxological wonder, right? He's going to say at the end of chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And so if we get to the end of Romans 11 and don't say the same thing or something similar, maybe, just maybe, we're a little unbiblically overconfident in our ability to understand the mystery of God that's being revealed to us here in this part of the Bible, right? Lastly, as we approach our passage today here in Romans 11, 1 through 10 in particular, we need to also acknowledge that Paul is addressing the state of Israel in his day. In his day. In verse 5, he says, so too at the present time. That's not 2023. That's more like 57 AD. All right? He's writing to the first century church in Rome, consisting of a mix of Jewish and Gentile Christians. He's addressing particular questions that they would have had, and we need to understand that, lest we over-apply this to our present day. We need to be careful in applying what we read here today before we actually really understand clearly what Paul was saying in his and so this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to ask and answer some questions from this text, and then, and only then, apply it to us, okay? First question we want to ask and wrestle with is, what is Paul saying? What's he saying to his original recipients of his letter? What's his argument? What's his logic? Paul is very logical, so we want to understand. What's his logic, and what's the argument he's making? Number two, why? Why is he saying it? What's going on that sparked him to write this to them? Why is he writing about all this complex stuff? And then number three, having a good grasp on those two questions, we're really ready then to ask and to answer, what's the significance for us? Okay? This is how to read your Bible, by the way. You know? Um, we can't just jump straight to application and what it means to us. We need to study a little bit. We need to understand what the original author was saying and why he was saying it. Otherwise, we can make a text say whatever we want it to say. We don't want to do that. That's not being faithful to God's word. That's how, to quote Peter once more, we twist things to our own destruction. So point number one, what is Paul saying? Well, he starts with another question of his, doesn't he? Chapter 11, verse 1, I ask then, 
Has God rejected his people? Has he rejected his people? Now remember where we are. This is the deep end of Romans 9 through 11. Paul began this weighty section of scripture by asking, has the word of God failed? These were questions pertinent to the first century church, to the Jewish Christians, sure, but it was also just as relevant to the Gentile Christians there in Rome too. Has the word of God failed? Like if Israel was God's chosen people who had all these privileges that we read back at the beginning of chapter 9, if, he were, if they were God's covenant people, how is it that so few were saved? That so few have come to trust in the Messiah who came from them for them? And Paul's answer to that in chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 6, where he said, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Right? In other words, not all Israel is Israel. Not all Ethnic, physical Israel is the true spiritual Israel. Paul is saying you're, you're, you're not saved by your nationality. Okay? No one here is saved by being an American. Let's just be real clear. All right? He has said, instead, in God's mercy, we are saved by grace through faith. In fact, the only way anyone is saved he stressed in chapter 9, was because of the divine sovereignty of God in choosing them. That's the doctrine of election. And it brings up some questions, right? Which Paul then addressed in chapter 10. Namely, if God is sovereign in whom he chooses, how can that be fair, you know? I mean, and he, if he set, forth, he set forth right alongside then God's sovereignty, he sets right alongside it human responsibility, remember? Two things difficult for us to reconcile in our fallible minds, but both are true. God is sovereign, we are responsible. We summed up the two last week saying we are responsible for our rejection of the gospel, but we are not responsible for our acceptance of it. If anyone comes to saving faith in Jesus, it is because God in his mercy has saved us. If anyone does not, it is because we in our responsibility and agency have rejected the gospel. And therefore, everyone is responsible for how they treat the gospel. Paul, of course, was saying all this with respect to his fellow Jews who heard the gospel, understood the gospel even, and yet still rejected it. They disobeyed it. And then he ends chapter 10, verse 21, saying of the unbelieving Jews of his day, all day long God has held out his hands to a disobedient and contrary people. A people who had rejected the gospel. People who had rejected Jesus. And as we turn then into chapter 11, now the question becomes, what now? Has God rejected his people? Has he rejected those who rejected him? Is he done with them? Is he so over ethnic Israel? And now just focusing his love and attention on the Gentiles? Those who are not his Old Testament covenant people? And the answer, Paul says, is by no means. And he gives two pieces of evidence. First, himself. Look at the second half of verse 1. Has God rejected his people? By no means. Why? For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Right? Paul is saying, look, I'm, I'm in. I'm a Christian. God hasn't rejected his people because he hasn't rejected me. 
I'm Jewish. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He said, look, I was also a blasphemer of Jesus and a persecutor of the earliest followers of Jesus, ravaging the church, like going around from house to house and, and dragging men and women who love Jesus and believe Jesus, dragging them out of their houses and putting them in prison. And then Jesus revealed himself to me, Paul says. I encountered Jesus and I ended up confessing with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in my heart that God raised him from the dead. And I got saved. Has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. Exhibit A, Paul says, me. And then he adds in verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, believe it or not, this is actually where the controversy of Romans 11 begins. All right? See, because how you read and understand the first half of verse 2 dramatically impacts how you read the rest of the chapter, especially verses 25 and 26. A lot of theologians and pastors who are way smarter than me that I read and look up to and learn a lot from and respect, um, they read verse 2 and they conclude that when Paul says God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, that he's talking about ethnic Israel there. They say the people referred to in verse 1 are the same people referred to in verse 2. And they say that because it's the exact same word, okay? I mean, we can understand why they say that. So they would say, God has God rejected ethnic Israel? By no means, God has not rejected ethnic Israel whom he foreknew. This is what they argue. This leads them then, when they get to verses 25 and 26, to be able to conclude that there yet awaits a great and mass salvation of ethnic Israel, where all of ethnic Israel will be saved. This is some of the raw materials for various forms of, just to put a big, big word on the table, premillennialism, all right? A view of the end times. And you're like, oh boy, is that, we're going there. Next week, yeah, maybe the, maybe the week after, I'm not sure yet, you know. Um, we'll get more into depth than that in a week or two. Um, but for now, back in verse 2, I also want you to know that there are equally way smarter theologians and pastors than me who I read and respect and look up to and appreciate, learn a lot from, who read verse 2 and conclude that when Paul says God has not rejected the people whom he foreknew, that he's talking about spiritual Israel there, the elect. This is the position that I hold, and I want to tell you why. First, if we follow Paul's logic, he seems to be citing his own salvation as proof that God has not rejected his people, right? If that's the case, then surely the people whom he foreknew are not all of ethnic Israel. It's true Israel, spiritual Israel, the elect. Or to use a word we'll soon meet in the text it was already introduced actually back in chapter 9, the remnant. The remnant. Second reason is to say that Romans 11.2 refers to ethnic Israel. It, you know, to say that Romans 11.2 refers to ethnic Israel would be to break the chain of Romans 8.28-30. You remember Romans 8? Those whom he foreknew. It's the same word here. 
Those whom he foreknew, all those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of the Son. And those whom he predestined, all those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, all those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God has not predestined and called and justified and promised to glorify all of ethnic Israel. It's kind of the point of Romans 9 and 10. (laughs) It's why Paul had to write Romans 9 and 10. Which leads to the third reason, which is this. What Paul already clearly taught in Romans 9 verse 6 is that God never intended to save all of ethnic Israel. Pastor Adam preached on that two weeks ago, did a fantastic job of it. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Or to use the language from Romans 11 verse 2, not all who are my people are my people. In other words, Romans 9 verse 6 and Romans 11 verse 2 are making the same point. Has God rejected his people? Far from it, Paul says. He himself who is both a part of ethnic Israel and true spiritual Israel, of the people of God whom he foreknew, that's exhibit A. Exhibit B, then, is Elijah. Or to be more specific, exhibit B is drawn from the time of Elijah. This is the Elijah argument. Look at the second half of verse 2. It says, Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You can go back and, and read the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 18. And his, his run in with Ahab and Jezebel and the 400 prophets. The false prophets of Baal. The false god Baal. It's the story where Elijah makes the mockery of the prophets of Baal. Do you remember this? Or when they try to call down their God to no answer, and then Elijah's like, well, maybe he's going to the bathroom or something like that. You know, he's busy. Um, And then Elijah soaks the altar in water, builds a trench around it, fills it with water, calls down the Lord Yahweh who consumes the, the offering in fire, again, putting to shame Baal and his prophets. And then Elijah kills the prophets of Baal. That's a little disturbing. And Ahab tells his wife Jezebel about it, so she puts out a hit on Elijah, and Elijah runs for his life. Remember this? And in 1 Kings 19, Elijah ends up alone with God at Mount Horeb, and he cries out to God against Israel, saying, everyone has left you. Everyone has apostatized. Israel has forsaken your covenant God. He has thrown down your altars. You know, they've they've killed your prophets, and I'm the only one left. And so he actually says, just kill me too, and let's get it over with. That's what Elijah says. And God calls out to him. This is one of those spots in the Bible where you really wish you could hear the tone of God. You know, he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And, And we don't know if it's like, what are you doing here, Elijah? Or, or if it's like, what are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> or, or if it's, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah repeats the same spiel after God calls out to him. Everyone's turned away but me. 
And God responds, that's not true. It's not true. We've got 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed to Baal. And this is what Paul's referring to in Romans 11, 2 through 4. And the point then is in verse 5. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. Elijah thought he was the only one left. And God says, no, I've got a remnant. So what is Paul saying? Follow the logic again. Verse 1, has God rejected his people? By no means. Exhibit A, Paul himself. Exhibit B, the remnant. There's a remnant. In other words, the point of this passage is that God has not rejected his people. He's redeeming a remnant. Just like in Elijah's day. In fact, there's always Always has been a remnant. There is now a remnant. And as we get further into chapter 11, we'll see there always will be a remnant until Christ returns. But how do we make sense of this remnant business? Well, first let me say, this isn't the first time that this idea is introduced in Scripture. In fact, Paul's already brought it in back in chapter 9 when he quotes from Isaiah in Romans 9, 27, saying, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the seas, only a, what's the word? remnant of them will be saved. That was Isaiah. In fact, if you go back and search the Old Testament, you'll find this idea of remnant all over the Old Testament scriptures, surprisingly, maybe. Especially in Isaiah, who uses it something like 16 times, as well as Jeremiah, who uses it something like 20 times, as well as Ezekiel and Amos and Micah and Zephaniah and Haggai and Zechariah. And back in Romans 11, Paul has all this in mind when he says, just like back then, just like in Elijah's day where there was a remnant, just like throughout all the Old Testament history where there was a remnant, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. In verse 6, he reiterates a point he's already made in chapter 10 that it's, it's not by works, this remnant business. Otherwise, grace wouldn't be grace. For grace is God's gracious kindness in salvation to the undeserving, isn't it? If anyone deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. What then? Where are we now in the argument, he asked. Well, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. If you are here last week, you know what it was seeking from chapter 10, verse 3, was the righteousness of God. Israel was seeking after being right with God, right standing with God. However, they failed to obtain what they were seeking because, he told us back there, they sought to establish their own righteousness. They were pursuing it by works. And we looked at their responsibility last week, how they had rejected the gospel. Now in verse 7 of chapter 11, he returns to God's sovereignty in the matter again. He says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Israel in general, Israel in the broadest sense, ethnic Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. God's work in election obtained it for the elect, but the rest were what? Hardened. Hardened. Another term they introduced to us back in chapter 9, talking about Pharaoh. Anybody need a breath? A stretch? More coffee? It's hard stuff, isn't it? But it matters. Israel, he says, failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. What do we make, how do we make sense of this hardening? 
Well, two things. One, it's God's work, the hardening. Chapter 9, 18 has already told us God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens. He hardens whomever he wills. Here in verse 7, the elect obtained it. They obtained right standing with God, the righteousness of God, reconciliation with God, but the rest were hardened. Paul is saying, true Israel, the elect of Israel, the people whom he foreknew within the greater ethnic Israel, all right, the remnant, obtained righteousness, but the rest, those of Israel who were not of spiritual Israel, those who were not of the remnant, not the elect, who didn't obey the gospel, remember from last week, but instead rejected it, the rest were hardened. As it is written, and he quotes from the law, the prophets and the writings here, saying this is how God has always treated ethnic Israel. If they hardened themselves, he hardened them too. And gives them over to themselves. Which is the theme we find even back early in the chapters of Romans. The Gentiles being given over to themselves. Look at verse 8. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see. Ears that would not hear. Down to this very day. Again, last week focused on human responsibility. Now we're back to God's role in the business. God gave them a spirit of stupor. That's something he's done. He's done it down to this very day. Another reminder that Paul's addressing his day. And then verse 9 returns to human responsibility. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap. A stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Their table became a snare, a trap. Their, their abundance. That's the table imagery. All they had, all their possessions, all their stuff, all their self-righteousness and self-sufficiency, it became a trap. And their eyes were darkened. And their backs were bent. But notice the word retribution. Implied here, is punishment of wrong. That's what retribution is. Punishment for wrong. See, the non-elect are not not guilty. Is that enough negatives? Their spirit of stupor, their blind eyes and deaf ears and bent backs are retributive. God has hardened them in their sin. Some have called this a judicial hardening, meaning God has given them up to their own stubbornness, their own proud hearts that have rejected the gospel. Has God rejected his people? No, God has not rejected his people. He is redeeming a remnant. How do we make sense of the remnant? How is one included in the remnant? It is only by grace. It's always only been by grace, and it only ever will be by grace. We make sense of the remnant in terms of God's grace and God's election, and we make sense of the rest by hardening. How do we make sense of the hardening? By returning again to holding both God's divine sovereignty and man's human responsibility together. He hardens whom he will, and yet those who he hardens are hardened in retribution for their own hardening. 
Hang on to those two things, right? God has not rejected his people, but he has brought hardening upon those who have rejected him through the gospel, which they have heard and understood and said no thanks to. That's what Paul is saying. Now, why is he saying it? Well, we've already touched on this, haven't we? The church in Rome to whom he's writing is a mix of Jews and Gentiles. And to the Jews, you've got to imagine that the Jewish Christians, just like Paul himself, they're heartbroken for their fellow Jews who have not believed in Jesus. Israelite unbelief was a thorny and complex issue in Paul's day. Okay, they're probably confused. And Paul is writing here to shed light on how to make sense of it all, how to make sense out of how some of God's Old Testament people turned out on this side of the cross to not be God's New Testament people. They're likely also discouraged. Like, man, why why won't they just believe? Why can't they too be saved? See, their confusion and discouragement really isn't that different than our own when it comes to those whom we love who aren't yet trusting in Jesus. And Paul has written and said in chapter 9 that the rejection, in chapter 9 he says, hey, the rejection is not complete. In chapter 10 he says it's not unfair, it's not arbitrary. And in chapter 11 he reiterates those two points and then will eventually add it's not absolute. God isn't done with Israel on the whole. He hasn't turned his back on this subset of the human population. No, instead, just like he said in chapter 1, verse 16, just like he said in chapter 3, verse 22, just like he said in chapter 10, verse 12, there's no distinction. There's still a way in. There's still a way of becoming a part of the remnant. And it's the same way in for all. Jews and Gentiles. The only way in is through faith in Jesus. See, another reason Paul is saying all of this is so that the Gentile Christians will hear it too. Like the Gentile Christians weren't like, oh, what's this Romans 9 stuff that we're reading in the letter now? We're going to go out and get some coffee. We'll come back when you get to 12 and tell us how to live our lives, right? No, this is for the Gentile Christians too. Like, did you know that when you put Jews and Gentiles together, they don't always get along? Did you know that? Even after they became Christians. It wasn't always easy goings. Ethnic animosity is not a new thing. It was a thing in Paul's day too. In fact, that's what chapter 14 is almost all about. Paul saying to them, stop passing judgment on each other. Get along. And so another reason Paul is saying all this is so that the Gentile Christians don't get puffed up. We'll look at that more next week, but with pretty strong words, he's saying, hey, it's only by grace that you got in too. Let's not forget that. You've been grafted in, into the tree. And so don't be arrogant towards the branches, he says in verse 18. Don't become proud, he says in verse 20, but fear. Fear God. After all, it was the Israelite pride. It was the Israelites' pride that kept them out. And so he's telling the Gentiles, even through here in Romans 9 through 11, don't get prideful now. Well, if that's what Paul is saying, and that's why he said it, what's the significance for us? What can we take away from all this? And again, we got to be careful here, right? Your unbelieving friends are likely not unbelieving Jews. Maybe, maybe some of you do. I don't know. You know, anybody got ethnic Jewish friends? Maybe. 
But by and large, the unbelievers in your life, any unbelievers in this room, are most likely unbelieving Gentiles. What that means is we need to be a little careful of just taking what we've got here in Romans 11 and say, God is hardening the hearts of those around us who don't believe the gospel. We need to be careful saying that. Now, he very, he very well may be doing that, but that's not the point of this text. That would be over-applying this text. Paul, in this text, is addressing the unbelieving Jews of his day, not the unbelieving Gentiles of our day. Does that make sense? There's a difference. It's why we always got to first get straight what the original author is saying to his original readers and why he's saying it. Then, and only then, can we see how it applies to us? Well, how does it apply then? What can we take away from this? Four things I want to suggest. Number one, salvation. No one is born into Christianity. That's an application of this text. No one was righteous based on their Jewish ethnicity. You have to be born again into Christianity. Or as the old saying goes, God doesn't have grandkids. Just because you grew up in a moralistic Christian home in the Midwest doesn't make you Christian. Just because you came to church doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you're going through the motions or kids in the room, just because your parents are Christians doesn't mean you're Christian. We have to be born again into becoming a Christian. So if you're here today and you're not trusting in Jesus, you should not immediately jump to the conclusion, hey, oh my gosh, I'm probably not one of the elect. You know, I must be just shoot out of luck. Somehow impossible to get in on this. Paul is saying the exact opposite. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're saved. It's all by grace. And so it's not too late. It's not by works. You, you don't have to wait. In fact, if that's you, what, what I want you to hear this morning is actually the words from Hebrews chapter 4 which are really relevant in light of Romans 11, where we read this, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. Like God's not done saving people. The door's not shut. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. The door's open for you today, right? Those who formerly received the good news and failed to enter it because of their disobedience. But again, he appoints a certain day today saying through David so long afterward and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice. Today if you hear his voice. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you're here and, and you're hearing maybe for the first time that Jesus came into the world to save you, to save sinners like you, that all you have to do is trust in him, all you gotta do is believe in him, believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he died for you, that he rose for you, that he forgives you, that he gives you new life. If you're hearing that today, if you're hearing his voice, do not harden your hearts. Trust him. Trust in Jesus and be saved. Second thing that we can take away from this text is encouragement. 
You know, just like in Paul's day, just like the Jewish Christians in Rome who would have read this, we too have people in our lives whom we love who are not trusting in the gospel. They're probably not ethnic Jews, but they're people we love, people whom we may even have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in our hearts for, people whom our hearts desire and prayer to God is that they'd be saved. And what we can take from Romans 11, 1 through 10 is that God is still at work. He's still working his plan for the nations, including anyone who you know who isn't trusting in Jesus. It's not too late for them. It's not too hard for them. Anyone can get in on this because it's always only ever been by faith. And if that's where you're at this morning, you know the words from Acts 18 maybe are appropriate for us to reflect on in light of our passage where Paul, he's getting ready to leave Corinth. Do you remember this? probably ready to leave. Maybe he thinks that everyone who's going to believe the gospel has believed the gospel, so it's time for him to move on. And what does God tell him? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Keep on preaching the gospel. Don't be silent. I am with you. And I have many more in this city who are my people. And number three, the third thing we can take away from this text is clarity I would put this in the category of second order application, but it's still appropriate. The concept of remnant can be pretty helpful as we look around at American evangelicalism today. See people turning their backs on Jesus, turning their back on the church, ditching biblical theology and crafting instead a theology of their own, which in turn, like the unbelieving Jews of Paul's day, is actually ditching the righteousness that is by faith in Christ alone. And instead, kind of crafting their own righteousness. Political affiliation righteousness. COVID precaution righteousness. Social issue righteousness. When we see people turn their backs, like Paul saw over and over again in the synagogues, we gain clarity through the doctrine of the remnant. Again, this isn't a one-to-one from the text to application because the remnant is the Jews, right? It's the, the elect from the, from the Jews. It's not the, the remnant isn't Jews and Gentiles. The remnant is Israel. It's the elect of Israel. It's not a one-to-one, but take heart. God's not giving up on his church. When you feel like you're the only one left, maybe in your family, when you feel like you're the only one trusting Jesus in your workplace, when, when a pandemic happens and in an election cycle and friends of yours lose their Bible-loving minds. And you're confused and you're discouraged and you feel like everyone has lost it but you. We're to be encouraged and to gain clarity from this text that God always has had. He has right now and he will continue to have a remnant, his people. So if you're here and you're trusting in Jesus, you're part of his people. So be encouraged by that and take clarity from that. In fact, if we learn from Elijah, the remnant's always larger than we think. So I love going to stuff like the Lincoln Bible Conference this past weekend where we partnered with five other churches from our city. A whole bunch of you were there. It was so encouraging to see. 
Sometimes the circle of Christianity that you're in can, can feel so puny, can't it? In comparison to the rest of the big secularizing world that you hear about in the news. When we come together in unity with other brothers and sisters in Christ, like we do on Sunday mornings in this room, or when we come together with other brothers and sisters in Christ across our city in a much bigger room, we are reminded it's not just me. I'm not crazy for believing this stuff. It's not just us. God's doing something in the world. It's way bigger. It's always larger than we think. So we gain clarity and encouragement. Lastly, by way of application, lest we find ourselves getting puffed up like the Roman Gentile Christians were tempted to, the last thing that we should take away from this text is the reminder and the exhortation to walk in repentance ourselves. To exhort others to do the same. As the writer of Hebrews said, take care, brothers. He's writing to fellow Christians. Take care, brothers. Take care, sisters. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Every day, church, we're to take care like this. Every day, we need the exhortation of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and they need our exhortation too. Lest any of us be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin in our own lives. Church, Romans 11 tells us what, Rome, what Hebrews 3 tells us, that we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence Firm to the end. Revealing ourselves to truly be of God's elect. And it's always only by grace. Let's pray. Oh, Father, in light of the truths that we've seen here in Romans 11 this morning, will we be all the more diligent, like Peter talks of in 2 Peter 1, to confirm our calling and election by practicing the faith. Making every effort to supplement our faith with virtue and our virtue with knowledge and our knowledge of self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. The same love that you've shown us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.